The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today, it's Clash of the Crises as Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur go head-to-head to find out which multi-billion dollar sporting franchise has it worse. It's not so tight at the top as Liverpool stretch to an impressive eight-point lead after Pep Guardiola once again forgets the counter-attacking football exists. Plus, impressive performances from Chelsea, Crystal Palace and Aston Villa and the Derby d'Italia to savour. Let's take you now into the audio recording facility where I'm joined, as ever, by Mina Rizuki. How are you, Mina? Oh, I'm in a great mood today. Thank That's you. That's good. That's great. Yes, Why? I know. It makes for a nice change. Well, it was a wonderful weekend of football, so you should be in a good mood. Uh, yeah, that's exactly why. Good. Very eventful. Lots to talk about. Helping us to talk about those these things. It's Matt Law. What's Hi. happening, Matt? You've made me Google poo in the dressing room. <laughs> oh, dear. So, more spoil, on that later. Don't spoil the end of the show. No, that, that is a spoiler, but yeah. Completing, so thanks for that. Completing our lineup state. Sam Dean, what's happening with you, Sam? I've got a minor case of man flu, but beyond that, I'm absolutely fine. No such thing as man flu. Breathe so. on Mina. Breathe oh, on geez, Mina. No, please don't. Mm. No such thing. Let's start with a club in crisis. The first of two crisis clubs we're going to discuss uh, on today's episode. Um, it is, of course, Manchester United. And we'll first hear from Jason Burt, who saw their defeat at Newcastle. Newcastle United 1, Manchester United 0. Another away day disaster for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It is now 11 games away from Old Trafford without a win. And most of those have ended in defeat. They're now just two points above the relegation places and in fact only one point ahead of Newcastle who are in the bottom three until this game. On the pitch, United really do look disorganised. They're struggling without key players. They'll use that as an excuse. But frankly, they have enough in their squad to surely do far better than this. £52 million midfielder Fred overshadowed completely by a 19-year-old debutant, Matty Longstaff, playing alongside his 21-year-old brother in the centre of the Newcastle midfield and it was Matty Longstaff who scored the winning goal, a local hero for Newcastle to rally around and obviously it's been dark times for them and actually the atmosphere inside the stadium was far better than I expected, I haven't been to St James's Park for a while but they really were behind the team and this was a great result for Steve Bruce and a terrible one for Solskjaer who afterwards apologised to United supporters who themselves turned on the Glazers, chanting Glazers out, interesting they're still behind the manager, still behind the players to an extent but how much longer can this continue? Um, United say they have faith in Solskjaer. They want to continue with him as their manager. But really, it's going from bad to worse. And it's difficult to see him sustaining this and carrying on. So, Man United fans not entirely sure who to blame at the moment. Who do you make most responsible for what's going wrong at the club at the moment, Sam? Uh well, I think across the board, the players aren't delivering what they should be delivering. The manager is showing no evidence that he can turn this around or create a team that can attack in any sort of cohesive, structured way. The executive vice chairman has basically mismanaged the club for six years consecutively to the extent that they've now got such a massive wage bill, spent so much money on a squad that is totally devoid of any sort of quality at all. And above that, you've got owners who are pretty much disinterested. So you can pretty much spread it across the board, I think. But um, more immediately, obviously, the focus will fall on on Solskjaer for the the way they're actually playing and, and the complete lack of any sense of, of purpose, of drive or attacking creativity going forward. I mean, yesterday they were just dreadful. And even after Newcastle scored, I can't think of one 
half chance or chance that they created. And I mean, even like Andreas Pereira, Juan Mata, Scott McTominay. These are mid. These are mid table players, really. And I know that sounds harsh on someone like Mata, who's obviously had a good career, but like. This guy's the creative fulcrum of the team and he's offering precisely nothing right now. So you look at it and think there are, there are major issues across the board and I personally can't see a way in which Solskjaer fixes that. I mean, I've not seen any evidence from him to make you think he's going to be the man to turn this well, around. He, he seems quite bullish. He was saying afterwards, you know, the break's going to come at a good time for us and, you know, it's been, we, no one's de- debating the fact that it's been a bad spell but we're going to get back and we'll be a bit fitter. Do you, do you buy that, Mina? Do you think Solskjaer's got enough about him to, to turn it around after the international break? No. Um, sorry, I feel like that wasn't the answer. <laughs> Don't apologise. Um, it's a strange one because... I feel sorry for them. Everyone keeps talking about the fact that, oh, is this really a good decision to have let Lukaku go? And I'm like, I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is, is that midfield is really poor. We can talk about the fact that Rashford doesn't get into the box already, but it, when Pogba was there and there is an 180 ma- 80 million valued player in midfield that knows how to combine with his strikers and the force in front of him, then I think United are a better play, a better team going forward. And I think they had that last season. I thought they combined beautifully. I think Pogba's absence is really weighing on this team. Um, I know that he hasn't always been at his best, but having a player like that is huge, especially when you look at the alternatives being the likes of McTominay and Pereira and Fred, who's nothing short of just bang average. I mean, what, if that... Can I jump in on Fred? Because yeah, this is on. a point I was going to make, and this seems a good time. Mm. Um, on Fred, I didn't see an awful lot of him for Shakhtar Donetsk, but I hear he was good. Mm. And Manchester City genuinely wanted to sign Fred. Yeah. So he can't be, rub- he can't be appalling... No, and sometimes though a, I've got, a good player comes into the league and it mm. just doesn't work. But Di Maria I've, didn't work, and he's but, brilliant. But well, this feeds in because it seems to be that every player of the last seven, eight years who joins Man United gets worse. No one gets better. I, I, we'll never know this, but if a Fred joined Man City and worked with Pep Guardiola, he'd have probably been good. You see, this is where same I... with Alexis Sanchez. This is where you have the problem of sort of, it's a little bit like this is a big team. And generally with big teams, they don't have time to develop talent. So you go there when you're already sort of nearly close to perfect. Yeah. But what you have with United now is is a sort of, we don't know who we are. Are we a team that's already perfect that buys the best? Or are we a team that now needs to develop the best? And that means devoting time to actually raising these kids to teach them what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to run, how they're supposed to line up. And I think there's a sort of identity crisis going on because you either accept your fate as being a, no longer a top four club or the huge man to United and start accepting that you need to start teaching players the way that maybe Chelsea are doing this year or you you do continue to just buy talent and hope to God in that case don't look at the likes of you know Rashford and Martial and actually buy experienced players that perhaps you don't need to devote so much time to nurturing but Fred is that player that you need to nurture so is McTominay so are others that perhaps can grow into being something special or not grow into something but also I wouldn't he's supposed to be a ready made player but I also wouldn't mind he's still from Shakhtar it's not like the guys come in from Real Madrid where he's got this winning mentality and understanding of how to work with the best players in the world it's still Shakhtar and they dominate their own but through through a series of managers now there's there's obviously not an environment at Man United for players to get better I I mean a similar point Fabinho at Liverpool this time last year people were talking about a Liverpool going to sell Fabinho because he's not playing what's going on with Fabinho turned out Klopp was was doing the right thing 
not playing him and actually working on his fitness, working on getting him ready to come into the team. And now this this season, he looks like Patrick Vieira. If Fabinho had gone to Man United at the stage he went to Liverpool, yeah, it'd he have probably have disappeared yeah, and not have worked. He would have. So, look, I am not a Solskjaer defender at all. I say sack him this minute. But there's a much wider issue in that players are going there and getting worse and not being developed. And that's that's working through a series of managers. So there's something fundamentally wrong at the club. Yes. Who, who takes the blame for that? I honestly don't know because I don't work inside the club. Sorry, but, but you're it, right, the culture at the club has to be wrong. Something has to be but wrong. If, you if there's had any like other a... business in the world, it would be someone like Woodward. That he would be the man who'd take the flat for it. He is. He should be the man who has. He hasn't offered the side any type of stability. If you have a clear identity in the way that a Klopp team plays or a Pep Guardiola team plays, then it's much easier for you to rotate because when you're coming into the team, you know everyone around you understands exactly what they're going to do on a tactical level and they tell you, you know, they can scream at you, they can tell you what's going on. There's no leadership qualities in this Manchester United side. They've never looked to even bring that in. Um, And there's just a constant change. So no one really knows what they're supposed to be doing, whether it's Mourinho, whether it's Van Hal or whether it's um, now Solskjaer there isn't a clear identity so you can't just slot in players and, and hope that they can start learning and developing it's much easier for Fabinho because he'll look at Jordan Henderson he'll look at Milner he'll look at what the others are doing Naby Keita or Giorgio Ronaldo, and he'll come in and be like okay this is what I'm supposed to be doing much easier for me when I have a blueprint and players that can help and players that are already good at that but when you come in for you United what are you supposed to do you're supposed to be the guy that ends up being like you know Harry Maguire comes in he doesn't slot into you all of a sudden he's the guy that's supposed to lead them forward and you know much like the the winger that they brought in and it's just constantly like okay well now we're going to look to you and hopefully you can rescue us on through individual play i think Solskjaer's screwed though now because looking at the highlights from last night and looking at united recently i think the players are losing any sort of belief in Solskjaer being able to turn it round or belief in what Solskjaer's trying to do. I mean, De Gea afterwards said this is the worst I've ever known it. Very downbeat. Talked about the fact they've not really scored any goals lately. They might like him, but I don't think they look at him and think this is a guy who can sort us out or at least get get the whole thing to a point where it's okay and just get us through this. There's no belief in him. And also looking at Rashford, mm. I mean, Rashford's confidence is absolutely shot. Um, say, this on, is not going to do him any favours whatsoever. I'd imagine he'll be delighted to link up with England for a week or two and just get out of that United environment. I admire Solskjaer for basically saying, well, I want to build around Rashford and make him the number one. But there's a genuine question to be asked that is Rashford actually good enough to lead the line as a centre forward for a club like Man United? And you look at the other th- the other front threes, other, other strikers at the clubs they're competing with for the top six and... United don't come close, and obviously Martial's injured, but even then still, I mean, in terms of like goal-scoring records and stuff, it's just a whole different ballpark. And I know the Lukaku thing's been mentioned before on this podcast and by a lot of people that they let him go and didn't replace him. But I was looking at the figures earlier. Rashford's best-ever goal-scoring season, he got 13 goals. Lukaku's worst goal-scoring season in the Premier League, he's got 15. Like, you say what you want about Lukaku, but he does score goals, and he did score goals against teams like Newcastle because... Oh, I have a stat that I can counter that with. Hit me. Okay, so uh, they had a bit better win percentage when Lukaku was not in the starting lineup in the past two years under Mourinho and Solskjaer. They won 62.5% of games in which Lukaku didn't start compared to the 55.8% with him in the starting lineup. So you're, if you're watching that game yesterday, when they threw on Tahith Chong, I, I don't Mason sit there and Greenwood. think, oh my God, this team needs a goal scorer. I think this team needs a midfield. But there's no way that Man United are better now than they were with Lukaku. They just sold him and not brought anyone in. 
They didn't need the money. I don't know why they did that. Yeah, but you're also looking at a team that everyone keeps talking about them not goals scoring goals, but there's no team that's creating chances. So right now there's no quality. There's no proper crosses that he can jump onto. There's no like brilliant comebacks that he can do the way that he has managed with Pogba against Leicester City last year or against... I forget all the different teams that they scored against, but you need a great midfield to provide for you. Otherwise, what you're lost with, I mean, look at Ronaldo. I mean, he was outscored in Serie A because we had, Juventus had a terrible midfield that couldn't provide for him. I think that that's the importance and you're losing a player that's 180 million right now who's not there, who's not being able to unleash him. I'm t- I agree with you in the sense that he's obviously not a Harry Kane. He's not a Sergio Aguero. But I do think that it's not him necessarily and I don't necessarily think bringing in the likes of I don't know a Lukaku or Harry Kane is all of a sudden going to make them score all these goals I agree with that but it would surely be beneficial to Rashford because to like learn I say, from someone else and yeah. also just to have someone there to take a bit of pressure off mm-hmm. on so you can take him off in games or leave him out of a game because he looks like he needs to be dipped out a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's not forget Newcastle, of course. Wonderful moment for Matty Longstaff scoring on his debut with his brother in the team as well. It's been a while since we've had some footballing brothers, Sam. Is this the start of something wonderful? Is this going to be a new dynasty? The Longstaff era? (laughs) And he's the first since the Torres in the Premier League? Uh, I think the uh, Fabio and Raphael may have uh, post-dated the Torres. Yes, uh, but no, they were very good. Uh, and I like the fact they played in midfield together. That's like a nice sort of yeah. nice touch. Um, but apparently, I was reading today that apparently Matty was always the higher rated one coming up through the academy. Obviously, he's a few years younger than Sean. Phil Neville syndrome. Really? Yeah, apparently oh. he was always seen as slightly uh, further ahead than, than Sean. Obviously, long, Sean had a great uh, few weeks last season, enough to get £50 million price tag slapped on his head, uh, which was just remarkable, really. But um, he's been quite poor this year until this weekend, so... Having his brother alongside him and playing against that United midfield, we've is discussed. his full name Matthew? Oh, I'm yeah, not I think sure. So, yeah. Anyone chat? His full yeah. name Matthew. I want to know why we're calling him Matty. That's he, what he, he might have. He might have requested it. If yeah. he's requested it, fine. We used to always call Scott Parker Scotty Parker, as though we all knew him, and it used to drive me mad. <laughs> did it, how, how did Scotty feel about it? I don't think Scott Parker ever referred to himself as Scotty. If anyone ever refers to me as Matty, I hate it. So now everyone will call me Matty. <laughs> You've never gone for Matty. Even I hate Matty. Years. I absolutely hate it. I want to know why we're calling him Matty. If it's because he said it, fine. If not, stop. <laughs> he, is, he is, in fact, Matthew. Yeah. All right, Meanery, let's move on to uh, Spurs, <laughs> who are our second crisis mean, club of the day. Uh, it is Meany. <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about Brighton first when we, when we cover Spurs, because we've mugged off Newcastle there by barely mentioning them and their excellent result. Um, this is a great performance from Brighton. Uh, we're, are we back on the Graham Potter uh, belief truck at this point, Mina? Oh, Sam seems to be a gold gong here. I don't know what to do now. Um, I don't actually know how to adequately judge all these teams that face Spurs because I don't <laughs> honestly think Bayern is worth of seven, worthy of a seven seven goals that they managed in the Champions League. And I'm not entirely sure that Potter's team, you know, is worthy of all of this either. When you look at the likes that Connolly did to Alderweireld, you're sitting there thinking oh my God, you're a great centre-back or you're at least you're supposed to be once upon a time, you're at least better than this. Connolly was good though, wasn't he? Connolly was fantastic, took his chances, was so good with his running, intelligent, tactically aware. Um, And there's a lot to say about Graham Potter and his team. They worked hard, they knew exactly where the weaknesses were, they studied that midfield and they made the most of it um, by exploiting all their spaces and going for their chances. But having said that, I honestly don't know because usually... Usually when you see Spurs playing, they at least press. They at least understand how to run a little bit. But 
But Brighton just outran them and it looked like outthought them. They just seemed to care. And you looked at the way that Spurs plays and there's something so bad there that you're not really sure whether they're an, an opponent that should be judged. Spurs have been so poor since the turn of the year. Uh, they've lost more games in uh, all competitions than any other Premier League team in 2019. Where's it going wrong for them on the field, Sam? What's changed about the way they're performing? I think there's a fundamental issue with intensity. Um, and we use that word hunger a lot, which I think is probably quite wishy-washy, but I think does apply quite accurately to Pochettino teams because so much of that success they had with him was built around energy, intensity, you know, that drive, that sort of cohesion on the pitch. And now you've seen that's completely gone out the window. And you look at, for example, Alderweireld and Vertonghen. And I remember a couple of years ago, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher did a really interesting analysis of Ashley Williams' Everton basically saying that the older you get, the deeper you, you drop because you get scared of getting turned because you look, you know you're not as fast as you once were. And you look at uh, the way that Alderweireld has basically been murdered by Gnabry and then Connolly in, in the space of a week. And you see the way that him and Vertonghen are basically backtracking whenever Connolly got the ball out of fear. And that's creating these, all these spaces in midfield which no one's plugging. And Aaron Moy was basically looking like Zidane in the midfield because he had all the space to do what he wanted to do. And there's no, uh, there's no sort of cohesive structure there that was obviously so important to Spurs before when they were decent and uh, that seems to be a pretty fundamental uh, disjointed nature of the team. I I agree with that just because in the sense that you know even if you do have Alderweireld and you have like I don't know let's just say you had two of the best centre-back partnerships in the world if the team as a unit is not working hard and Pascal and Moy like you were saying has all have all this time and space on the ball in midfield in key areas sort of just behind the front line and they can dictate and and tell you where to go they don't need to be Zidane they can just be anyone because you're not even doing anything to stop them so what you're doing is exposing these two centre-backs who are getting on in age but you're exposing them to one-on-one situations or being left on their own because the team is not working as a unit. It's not pressing, it's not caring. You can see so many times Lamella, who has had his contract renewed, who is supposed to be somebody who, I don't know, it's not like that many people are interested in buying Lamella. Like, I don't know why he can't be bothered to make a few runs either. So it just seems to be if you're not helping out your defence, then I don't care who you have at the back, they will be exposed. Alderweireld's suffering as well with the right-back issue at Tottenham because yeah. that's his side. And it's a different person every week. Uh, Saturday, it was a midfielder who played at right back. Pochettino was bizarre on the Friday before. He got asked about his right back options and why he didn't sign a right back in the summer. And he said, well, we've got 11 defenders at the club and listed them all. And then said, do you understand? And we said, well, now we understand even less because you're telling us you've got 11 defenders and you're playing a midfielder at right back. (laughs) It's just all so confusing. What's what's the mood like, Matt? Because it feels like the tone of, of the coverage seems to be that people are writing Pochettino's obituaries. There's a sense that things are coming to an end, but is that reflected in the mood of Daniel Levy and well, you, what you, Spurs are, 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 where they're at? Daniel Levy, it's got to get really bad for Daniel Levy to sack Pochettino. We were all talking last year about how much it would cost to get Pochettino out of Tottenham, probably around £32 million. Well, unless they've got some side deal, that's also how much it costs to sack Maurizio Pochettino. So Daniel Levy isn't sacking Maurizio Pochettino anytime soon, and nor should he, because, you know, he's got enough credit in the bank. And if you look at what he could replace him with, you've got to think that Pochettino's the best option. Pochettino's got a problem because he's made it very clear in the summer and before the summer that he felt certain players were, were getting to the end of their cycles at Tottenham and wanted a big turnaround he he identified well over a year ago that Alderweireld 
was was going over a hill. Um, he's thought it with Rose for a while. He's actually thought it with Sissoko, the club's given a new contract to recently. And yet, the club haven't got rid of him. The players themselves know that Pochettino thinks this. So, they might not be not playing for Pochettino in the sense of they're not being vindictive about it. I don't think they're a vindictive bunch. I think they're generally quite a good bunch of lads. But if you know that your manager or your boss kind of thinks you're not good enough for that team anymore, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect you. It's going to affect the belief. You, you know that ultimately he doesn't believe in you. He wanted to get you out. He wanted to rejuvenate things. And for a while you might try and prove him wrong. And that's maybe where the get into the Champions League final came in. You, you perform at a level that's actually beyond you because you're trying to prove him wrong. But it's caught up with him. How does it shake out from here then? Wow, it's such a hard question that. It's such a hard is, question. Is the coverage right? Am I am I misjudging the fact that it seems like I think the they're way, still the getting winds blowing? Is it's like oh, you know, this is it. It's all over for Poch. This is the end of an era. I think it's a long goodbye though. Mm. I, I look. If you asked me now to put some money on it, I'd still put my money on him seeing out the season. Um, I think it's got to get really bad for that that not to happen, unless a convenient split comes from all parties, whereby as a Dan gets sacked or someone in Real Madrid come along and everyone thinks right, Solskjaer. yeah. Tottenham can make some money out of him, not have to sack him, whatever. But if no convenient split comes, then they're going to have to ride it out for the season. And it's really tricky to see where a solution comes from, albeit from just with... They're just going to have to put plasters over, trample plasters over it. I do wonder how much the Champions League final, that being such an obvious pinnacle for this group of players, and even Pochettino's language around that, calling it, you know, the end of the chapter and that sort of thing. And the, I was reading today that he even um, straight away flew back to Madrid from the flew back to Barcelona from the final, and Madrid didn't come back with the squad to London. You look at it and think this group of players must know that that was their great, their best chance to win a trophy like that. They're not going to win the league. They're not going to get the Champions League final again. They must have known this was the the ultimate opportunity. And once that slips up your fingers, there must be an element of where do we go from here? I think that's probably the hardest thing as well. It's like it's it's really easy right now to motivate a team like Liverpool or to motivate Manchester City. But that kind of where Unai Emery is, where Solskjaer is, where you know where they are, their place in, in sort of the table and what's expected of them, they know that they can't, and, and you know, obviously including Pochettino, they know that they can't overcome these two teams. Their teams aren't good enough. And it's kind of like, what are we playing for now? And I know that your job is obviously to do much better, but when the team is stale and, and so many of them are still there from 2015, then it just becomes that much harder because he's also feeling like everywhere I go, this is my issue. Espanol, they took my best players, they sold them, and every year I had to try to do something special. And I'm tired. I want to be at a big club where I can buy the players I want to buy and play the kind of football I know I can play. Let's turn our attention to the top of the Premier League table where Liverpool now have an eight-point lead after Manchester City's surprise home defeat to Wolves. Mina, this is back to the very worst of Pep Guardiola defending, isn't it? <laughs> Wolves had so many chances, they just cut them apart again and again. I know, but how? With their two, uh, two vertical passes forward, right? Isn't that all it requires? There was lots of explanations for this, and, and there is merit to some of the arguments that people were talking about from the fact that Rodri didn't really provide the filter required from midfield. Um, the one that Fernandinho could back in, you know, when he was not playing as a central defender. And there's all these different things, but at the end of the day, and I'm sure if JJ was here, he would argue to death with me about this, but... You can talk about there not being Laporte. You can talk about there about not being Vincent Company. But in every team, really, even Bayern, 
even when he was with Bayern, Pep has a problem against very vertical, quick sides. And, you know, Wolves managed to get a point from them last season against, you know, against City. Norwich managed it with very fast-paced, you know, committing players forward. All you really need to do with City is, is slow them down, make them think about things when they are trying to push forward so that they're not just constantly confusing you about how quick their passing is. Slow them down and then just run really fast at them and you look at they'll look terrified. Massive praise for Nuno, though, wasn't it? That, that change he made when he brought Doherty on yeah. and stuck Traore through the middle. He should when, have always started with Doherty. Well, you say that, but Traore's it, it worked. The, the, the well. two tactics worked, though, didn't it? It yeah. worked to have Traore at right wing back to start with, and then when City are really, really having to go for the win, actually, you're right. Then about you that. absolutely Olsen's, catch them mm. out. I thought it was genius. Super Nez. What about <laughs> Liverpool, uh, Sam? Who are top of the Premier League table? Um, next three games for them: United, Spurs, and Arsenal. Three wins. Arsenal's the cup, isn't it? Yeah, three yeah. wins. Three wins. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, I don't. There, there seems to be much like there was last season. There's just this sort of willpower to this team that they, they they tend to get over the line, and that sounds a weird thing to say for a team that didn't get over the line and win the league. But they won all their games and pretty stupid from Mark Albright, wasn't it? That foul. I, I, do you I, think? I think dive. Why, is it? I, I would, Why aren't I we calling could, Mane a diver? He dives. Do you think yeah. it was a dive? I couldn't figure it out for the life of me. I must have watched that over about. 20 times and they didn't You're know. allowed contact. It's not a non-contact sport. You're, I hate this. You're allowed to go down if you feel like you've been fouled in the I box. How, I hate this. It, there true, was contact. contact, yeah. Literally, their ankles, like, touched. He didn't take his ankles away from him. He died. It was a clear dive. Absolute clear dive. Not doubting that. I think it's naive from Albrighton, though, to go in in that way. I don't. It's, it's just... It's a very risky move at that point of the game in that area of the pitch. playing football and they, they there was contact. <laughs> there was just a bit of contact. He's not trying to do anything I'm stupid. Just playing football ref. Oh, I just hate but you, it. But it was it was hard. It. it was really harsh on Leicester. I thought it was a penalty. Yeah, I think I'm with you, Sam. Yeah. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Mane's good, don't he? Mane's no, he's really a diver. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Mane's their best. But he was right Mane was fantastic. It's defensive work. He does what so about much. the pass from Milner? Mm. The pass from Milner was sensational. James Milner, did you see that stat that someone put out the other week about James Milner's now been a Premier League footballer for longer than he's been alive? Like That does sound quite hard to do. He, well, he was 16 when he got through at Leeds United. But he's been a Premier League footballer for longer than he's been alive? No, to, along the proportion <laughs> of his life. I see, I along see. Along the proportion of his life. More than, life, more than half his life. There was yeah. a good stat when they played MK Dons in the Cup when Harvey Elliott started and... Harvey Elliott was born after Milner had made his professional oh, debut. Marvellous. That was nice. He's just amazing. He's yeah. he's underappreciated. Yeah, he's a fantastic player. He's the top player. assist weekend in the Champions League two seasons ago. Oh, that rings a bell, yeah. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Give him a statue. Let's rattle around the rest of the Premier League now. Two future kings in the stand watching your Aston Villa side, Matt, at Norwich. Um, you said they needed time. Is this result evidence that uh, they've had the time and now they're clicking and it's all going to be brilliant from here on in? I was carried away on Saturday. I've calmed down a bit now. I'm not going to get carried away. We, we got Norwich at a good time with all their injuries. What, what frustrates me is seeing the, the pictures of the two future kings. If... We're in Italy or somewhere. That would guarantee that Villa would get to win the league all the time. <laughs> if, uh, in lots what of, are you trying to suggest over here? Of, uh, nothing, huh? I'm not suggesting there are current um, countries at all. But in lots of countries, that would definitely guarantee a whole dynasty of success if the kings and future kings supported the club. 
But hey, great result, much needed result, particularly with all the other results down the bottom. And I think we've deserved that because we haven't got exactly what we've deserved this season. So it is Norwich. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, the Norwich beat Man City with all their injuries. You've still got to go and win. Yeah, that's because they know how to play, you know, fast football. But I mean, it was a side that, I mean, okay, it was great tactics, but let's be honest, the guys can't defend. And if you push so, and you commit so many men forward, it's kind of like a given that Norwich are going to just concede lots of space to you. Grealish for England, Matt? Not yet, not yet, but he, he, can, he can definitely get in there. I didn't think he should have been in this squad, but if he carries on playing well, there's a lot of competition for where Grealish plays, though. I mean, he's got to be getting ahead of people like Mason Mount, James Madison. It's, even if he's playing really well, it's going to be quite difficult. Hurahan was amazing. Yeah, Hurahan's really underappreciated, really underappreciated by Villa fans as well. Four losses in a row for Everton now. Uh, Burnley, back to their Burnley best, beating them at Goodison. Does Sean Dyche to Everton make a little bit of weird sense to anyone else in the room? <laughs> no. Does to me. He would be perfect for them. If they weren't be, being kind of snobby and thinking, oh, we've got to have some sort of foreign genius manager, I actually think Dyche would be perfect for Everton. Well, in a second now, I'm going to expect you to say Sam, Sam Allardyce and Ali yeah. Dutra and, and, and about them. <laughs> Why wouldn't Sean Dyche be perfect for Everton? Everton, Chris Baskin makes this point about Everton, which I think is a brilliant point. All of Everton's best years and the times the fans have got got on board with Everton is when they play fast, direct football, get it in the area for a big man, Duncan Ferguson days. They like that and there's nothing wrong with liking that. Dyche would be brilliant for them. They didn't like when Big Sam did it. They hated him. It mm. was different though. That's That wasn't fast. It was very different. I think the most damning thing for Everton is you compare them to Leicester. And you look at the way Rogers has gone in there and pretty yeah. much straight away created a style and a system and a sort of sense of momentum. And Everton have basically got the same tools, and if not better tools, as a squad. And Silva's done nothing of the sort and he's had much longer to do so. They seem to suck really promising players into this black yeah, hole this is of another doom. Thing. Like if you think, of like, think of how exciting Sigerson was, even, even for Spurs in part, and how now he's just like on the periphery and not very exciting they quite keep, depressing they keep conceding for set pieces too they've, I'm worried yes exactly what uh, is Marco that Marco Silva's had issues wherever he's gone for this and they've now conceded more than any other Premier League team since the start of last season from set pieces but he's also lost his assistant who was very good at helping him sort of d- try to defend against them at least towards the end of last season he hasn't replaced him adequately but you know that this is a huge flaw in your team why are you fixing it well apparently I have a source on this oh. apparently he holds these sort of hour-long set-piece training sessions, makes them just do it for literally like an hour or so. But the guy I was talking to said that the thing is, footballers being footballers, it's the wrong way to do it because they just stand there getting border and border and border and border and none of it goes in. I think he might just be a boring character. <laughs> <laughs> You're at Arsenal, Sam. See them beat Bournemouth 1-0 first goal for David Luiz. Fed say Arsenal rode their luck a little bit, but they're up to third now. Up to third, one point behind Man City, which feels odd considering that it feels like all season Arsenal have been teetering on the edge of their own sort of mini crisis. But um, first half they were quite good. They actually controlled the game in midfield for the first time I think this season and then second half that went massively out the window and they were pretty lucky to cling on. Um, But they did cling on and they showed a bit of genuine defensive metal. There was um, Callum Chambers did very well, David Luiz did well and Guendouzi was making a few tackles too. So there were Minor positives, but you still wouldn't say that Arsenal have played a good match this season in the league. There's not been one 90 minutes where you've gone, yeah, that was a good performance. They're very patchy still. What are you making of Chelsea, Mean A 4-1 victory for them at Southampton. Young players doing very well. Frank Lampard seems very happy. What's your read of it all there? It's, it's, listen, it was interesting because I was 
very apprehensive when I saw this team and I noticed, you know, obviously the fact that they've lost their best player in Hazard. It's a bunch of kids. How are they going to, you know, deal with this? But actually, I think that it's going perfectly well. I think Tammy Abraham is showing that, I mean, what a nice stretch to get that goal. Mason Mount is so essential to the side on a tactical level. Um, I'll be honest, there's a part of me that doesn't think that they're being tested enough which I know that sounds weird but there's still that inability to really compress properly so on a defensive level you see that the, t- the team expands very well and then you'll have lots of spaces between midfield and and defense and that worries me a little because it allows all the space for other opponents to come in and utilize um, so it's that ability to sometimes just be a little bit more compact in certain situations which requires a lot of bit of experience and maturity as well and and, and better maybe, I don't know, shouting from Lampard from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. But it's obviously a great team. It's so entertaining to watch. I I don't know. I mean, they did... I mean, they're doing well all right in the Champions L- little, League. A little bit harsh on a team who won 4-1 away, Mina. <laughs> yeah, it's Southampton. I think this is another thing. Like, you know, sometimes it's like we're so... You know, it, you have to recognise the opponent. I think Southampton are really poor. And I don't know what's going on over there. I mean, I, I'd like to say, like, Hassan Hutel's a good coach. I don't know whether there is just a confidence crisis like he thinks it is over there. But I do think that there are sides where I'm not going to be that pleased if we're going to defeat. I'm not going to be that pleased if I defeat Norwich City. I'm not going to be that. It's a bit like, you know, um, Huddersfield last season. I love them. But, you know, you sort of be like, yeah, it's going to be easy to defeat them or Fulham. And that's the way I feel with Southampton. So I'm not going to take too much in this because they still considered a goal to this Southampton. <laughs> What about Palace, Matt? Up to fourth Roy Hodgson. after their win at West Ham. Well, Roy Hodgson, but also I think Gary you know, Cahill. Gary Cahill. <laughs> Absolutely storming game both, against West Ham. Uh, both proving that, you know, ageism ageism shouldn't be a thing. I'm really pleased for both of them. I want to not bang on about Gary Cahill because I bang on him about a lot. Um, I want to bang on about Roy. Mm. It's that squad. He didn't get anything. He got he got Cahill who he wanted, but striker-wise, fullback-wise, he didn't get anything that he wanted. He had a whinge in the summer about the fact they weren't spending the money. He lost uh, his second best player in Wan-Bissaka. And yet he's just doing a phenomenal job. Sahar's back playing well. Like, that's, that is a tricky playing, managerial Jordan job. Ayew, Jordan Ayew. He's got a tune out of Jordan Ayew who has had a dreadful Premier League career up until now. You know, he's usually a guarantee of relegation, having Jordan Ayew as part of your squad. Um, he'd got an iffy attitude previously, and yet he's he's got him playing really, really effectively and really well. And he's using what he's got. He's doing sensationally. Um, I think when Roy Hodgson finishes managing, when you end up looking back over his career, he's going to end up... You're going to have to say he's one of the best managers that this country's ever produced. Yeah, I think so. And it's so phenomenal for a manager to be able to come back from what he suffered with England. Because if you look down the years at what managers do after they've been chewed up and spat out by a bad England experience, it's basically usually the end of their their career. They go and try again, it goes wrong, they fade out into punditry. For Hodgson to go again and again and again, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, heartwarming stuff. We head now into an international break. It's the Czech Republic on Friday night in Prague for England, which sounds like it's definitely going to go off without a hitch and everyone's going to be very well behaved. Uh, And then Bulgaria on Monday. Some new names in Gareth Southgate's squad, Sam, Tammy Abraham, Tamori in there as well, but no room for some of the heroes of 2018. Um, Is that time up, do you think, for any of the three big names that have been left out? Deli Ali, Jesse Lingard and Carl Walker? Uh, I think the... I wouldn't say time up for any of them. I think particularly um, Walker and Ali would would expect to be 
back in there come tournament time. But I think the the Ali one's probably the most interesting just because of the way his form has really just dipped in the last probably goes back eighteen months now. He wasn't even that good at the World Cup really. I know he played a lot, but he wasn't he wasn't one of the absolute standout performers. And you look at the way his goals record has dripped. Uh, dipped last season uh, repeated hamstring injuries always a bit of a concern slight worries about off-field lifestyle and those sorts of things creeping in and you just wonder whether I mean I think Matt I think it was you who wrote recently that a couple of years ago he was you know yeah Pochettino said two that he years was the best 21 year old in the best world 21 year old in the world and right now he's very much not in that bracket at all and no one could really argue that he shouldn't be the England team so for him I mean his his Problems are probably symptomatic of what's going on at Spurs too, but that feels to be the most sort of dramatic fall from grace. So I'm not sure Lingard. I mean, Lingard have one, has had one good season pretty much consistently. Other than that, he's played in patches his whole career, whereas Ali's obviously been seen as this world-class talent for a long time. I think, think Delhi's still got a chance if he can get things going at Spurs. I actually think the other two are probably out now. I think Walker... I think Walker thought he'd be in this squad and the fact he isn't probably signifies the fact that Southgate's decided to commit... He's got an awful lot of options at right back with young right backs, yeah, and it feels like he's there's no decided to commit elsewhere. There's no contested spot in any team in the world than the England. That's right. right. If position. there was, if there's a World Cup for right backs, we'd be right up there. <laughs> so you think if, if if let's say the World Cup was like now? Yeah, what, I don't think what, he'd be what, in. Would be in the squad. No, oh. he had a really bad Nations League, and it feels like Southgate's decided right now's the time to move on from you. I always like the way Southgate keeps me. We when we talk about what's going wrong at Tottenham with things being allowed to go stale and depending on the same players too much and people feeling that they've reached a pinnacle, which the England side of 2018 may well have done. Um, it's really clever from from Southgate to keep keep turning it over, keep rejuvenating it. the option to do that that sometimes club managers don't. Yeah, but you've still got to do it. You've still got to be brave enough to do yeah, it. The easy true. thing, you know, that there's a group of guys who got them to the semi-final who's no one's going to complain if he sticks by them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it, you can argue foresight. that was England's undoing for a long time was just sticking with the same core of players who uh, weren't necessarily but I mean we could have way. by the European Championships we could easily have five Chelsea Academy kids in it and if Rhys James gets in he might even be knocking on the door as a sixth I mean that <laughs> this 2019 lot could sort of rival that class of 92 lot from Man United at some stage down the line yeah, but you also have to make sure that I'm I'm a little bit worried like with things like Taliani and stuff, whether they'll reach a point where they're exhausted and they're only 21 years old and there's so much expectation on them. I think like growing youth is it's like a balancing act to make sure that mentally they're still on board and they're fighting hard and they're okay with the pressure and not sort of wearing them out so young. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's point. good Ali's been given a rest in that case. What's the harder of the two games? Uh, the first one, Bulgaria, when we played them in the last international break, were absolutely dreadful. I thought that attitude stank, actually. They went 1-0 down and just decided to to jack it in. Um, so I think the first game, but you wouldn't say... I'd have thought that when you look at the teams that are picked for both games, that the Czech Republic team will be closer to what Southgate thinks is his first team, whereas he might experiment more a little bit in that Bulgaria game, given how weak they were. But... I just hope, I mean, you know, you said that we're all a bit worried about the behaviour of the England fans in Prague. 
over a kind of weekend, which the you know the FA had asked the police to change and they wouldn't. And we're also worried about racism in Bulgaria. So I'm just hoping it doesn't turn out to be one of these really depressing international breaks. Yeah, it'll really ruin next week's podcast as well. Let's hear some <laughs> lovely music now. It's a Tarantella composed by the definitely Italian Ian Hughes. <laughs> Yes, that's right. It's time for a song for Europe. Juve edged past Inter to win the Derby d'Italia. Nina Rizuki delighted. How did they do it? Oh, I don't like the word edged. <laughs> they were <laughs> they were so superior. It it was it was honestly a show to watch. I thought it was a brilliant match um, because obviously Inter are six for six. They had just managed to win every single game. They had a very good performance for the first hour against Barcelona, and people really started to believe in Antonio Conte's team. And just when you started to believe. You saw the tactical limitations of their coach. You know, he's all about intensity. Let's run at 200 kilometers per hour. But against genuine quality, like when Barcelona turn it on and know how to keep possession, I never, I'm never quite confident in Conte's team understanding how to match that quality if they're not running nonstop. Um, obviously, I think what was bad is that they lost Sensi, who's become their midfield go-to guy, which is interesting because he's the guy that wasn't the, the one that they were desperately looking for in the market. They bought him in, thought he was a good player, but who they really wanted at the time was Lukaku and Barella, but it was him that now they're built around. Um, but Juventus were outstanding. Honestly, they were just outstanding in every way. They were just so fluid going forward. Um, there's such understanding between the players. The midfield was was is really starting to come into its own with Pjanic, weirdly enough, because he's been there for a while now, but you can really see him developing under Sadi. Dybala even managed to do something in, exciting, and you know I'm not a fan of his, but this really looks like a, a wonderful side. They had a moment when they fell off a little bit, but came back, secured the win, and Iguain is right now one of the, I think, the best striker in, in Serie A. Saw a story over the weekend that AC Milan nearly sacked uh, Gianpaolo during half time of their win against Genoa. Is there any truth to that? No, <laughs> there isn't. Oh. <laughs> but they are Marco Gianpaolo, which for the life of me, I'm yet to understand why he was given the Milan job. Um, I mean, people will tell you he's somebody who does have an identity. He plays a, a very stylish brand of football. He did very well with Sampdoria, but he's a guy who's never managed more than ninth place in Serie A. He's... Uh, He's also a man that never seems to have a tactical plan B. And you've just offered him just this really young squad and been like, all right, now do something with them, raise their value because we need to sell. And obviously he can't because he's, I mean, his win percentage is not even 39%. And he's been handed the youngest Milan squad ever without even players that he wants. So it's all a little bit of a mess in Milan. And I wonder whether they'll recover, but I'm not a fan of his. I don't like guys that just play one style of football and don't understand how to beat teams that counterattack. And what about in España? Eden in Hazard uh, <laughs> scored his first goal for Real Madrid. Okay, vamos. How's he settling in? Oh, there's been so much about this, which I'm just like, I don't understand. For some for some weird reason, everyone's like, why has Eden Hazard not come in and started performing the way that we know he has? He's had a thigh injury. I mean, you know, like, as in, you know, like, bear with him. Um, I think there's a, all this onus now, and I was listening to all the stuff being said about Nicolas Pepe at like Arsenal. The guys have just come in, like give them a little bit of time to just adapt themselves to a new league. And Hazard is Hazard, and we know that he's got the quality required, but 
maybe he wasn't at his fittest when he arrived and his body wasn't in the kind of shape that you would expect from a champion. <laughs> and I get all of this, you know, we had it with Higuain as well. But even the great Zidane, even Bergkamp, even so many others weren't always brilliant when they first started. And it takes time to embed themselves into the tactics of the team. But Zidane is a terrific coach because they are first at the moment <laughs> in La Liga. I'm not going to buy it. Uh, okay. <laughs> Pathetic attempt to get me. I, to I buy think it. it's hilarious that Lionel, Me- that you know, you've got Messi, you've got Suarez, you've got you know, this great Barcelona side that spent over a billion now, and then you've got poor old you know Madrid, you know, without their Ronaldo, with Zidane, that no one rates, and they're top of the league. But that's where they are. You're really enjoying JJ not being here, aren't you? <laughs> Playing some shots this week. Did you see uh, Dembele's red card for Barcelona. No, he told the referee he's now going to miss a Clasico. Apparently, oh. because, uh, he told the referee. Very bad. You are very bad. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> really stunted Spanish. Which I think wow. is a fantastic way to get it. I really don't know why, but I love this kid. Yeah. <laughs> Last time they won, though, and they won 4 0 very well without Griezmann. So yeah. My anti Griezmann. He got sent off just saying for referees, very bad. Um, is that all he did? I, th- I don't know if he did said that after he had been shown a. There's a lot of issues around at the moment. That Griezmann. can't be a red so card. He already offense. had a yellow card, and then he got sent given a straight red. And the, in the referee's report, he said, the player Dembele was sent off for saying, very bad, you are very bad <laughs> How to is me. that a red card offence? Yeah, well, you know, take it up with the well, t- Spanish authorities. Yeah, and they are really weird about this, but I'm I'm so dying to see what's going to happen with Griezmann because I just feel like this, this guy has dreamt about Barcelona all his life and he's just arrived at this club and... I just he gets the feeling that Messi doesn't want to play with him. He's having to sacrifice the positions that he wants to play in. And it's like, did you really think that you were going to be the main guy over here? So. It's just mad signing. It makes no sense. Let's finish up by talking about the Nice Academy player, Diaby Fadiga, who admitted to stealing a teammate's watch worth $70,000. And I would like to ask you, what is your favourite footballing dressing room story? We asked our friends on Twitter, and Bobby replied rather cleverly, saying, I once had a teammate who spent $70,000 on a watch. Unbelievable. Nicely done, Bobby. What have you got for me, Sam? Um, uh, Mario Balotelli in his time at Liverpool. Um, The story goes that one day before training, he arrived and one of his teammates had a new iPhone. So they'd just come out that day, the new iPhone 6 or 5 or whatever it was. And uh, apparently Balotelli was visibly annoyed by seeing this new iPhone that he didn't have one. So they trotted out for the warm-up and uh, within about 30 seconds he was claiming a, a hamstring pull. So he limped out of training, went to the dressing room and then when they all came back, all the players came back in about an hour later, he was sitting there with, surrounded by boxes of iPhone 6s, smiling and saying, I've got some, I've got some, I've got some. So he, he, he cried off sick for training and sent one of his entourage to go and buy about 10 iPhone 6s just so <laughs> he couldn't stand the fact that he didn't have one and someone else did. Big-hearted Balotelli. How about you, Mina? Uh, there's a few I, I feel for the uh, Real Madrid dressing room. I think one of my favourites is, is the one where Marcelo was saying that his... Um, the guy who has the locker next to him kept changing and he had Kiko Casilla, the goalkeeper, and then it became Gareth Bale. And he's like, you know, my English is not very good. So, but I, you know, I like Bale. He's a really nice guy. Um, but I don't know how to speak to him. So I just go up to him and be like, hello, good wine? Because <laughs> that was his way of being like, you know, did you drink good wine over the weekend? Um, there's that. And I loved when Higuain was there at the time that every time uh, there would be a big match and Higuain would be pumped up, he'd put on Miley Cyrus's The Climb because he really identified with the words. And you just imagine wow. this big club with Miley Cyrus <laughs> blaring out of like the dressing room and you think it's perfect. Yeah. Higuain is such a sentimental guy. I'm all for but it. Those, those 
Marcelo comments on Bale and Courtois had a dig as well. They really like damaged Bale in Madrid last no, year. No, Marcelo like, had they, no intention. I, I don't know, think I know, they I, do. I, don't, yeah. I don't think they meant to, but like they caused him so much so grief. Much. Yeah. Oh my God, but can I also say Godin was so funny because he's arrived now in Italy and they're like, you know, how are you settling in from, you know, from Atletico? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's been really normal. It's easy. I mean, it's, you know, it's similar countries, but um, they have dinner very early here in Italy. You know, it's like eight or nine and, you know, I'm not used to that. Eight or nine. I sometimes wonder if that's just a conspiracy that Europeans make up to make English people feel bad. Is that what? Spaniards eat honestly at 11pm. They Come do on. sleep in the day, though. Grow up, Spain. <laughs> Come on, Matt. You've had all episode to well, think about this I question. I couldn't what think have you of one. And this is why I was Googling poo in the dressing room, because <laughs> you, you told me there were several good poo stories. Well, only one. Well, I found the Brighton one. Is that the good that's one? The, that's yeah. the best one, yeah. So, yeah. So, Brighton <laughs> played Crystal Palace, and Crystal Palace found a poo in the dressing room. <laughs> which I'm not sure con- should constitute anyone's favourite, but I do like. Uh, Gus Poyer was the manager of Brighton at the time and felt annoyed about the situation enough to send an email to everybody at Brighton. And I'd just like to quote some of it because it's brilliant. To say it in clear English, someone had a poo all outside the toilets, <laughs> over and around the toilets. Did they imagine that this would affect the Crystal Palace players? Well, possibly it did. It may just have fired them up more. <laughs> so he's worried that the poo actually worked to Crystal Palace's advantage. Yeah, there's your, there's your half-time team talk. Pin it up on the dressing room and let that motivate the place. What, the poo? Yeah. That's your lot for this week. You can contact me on Twitter before next week's show if you'd like to. It's at Tom with an H. Gibbs. Send us an email too if you'd like. Why not? Like it's 1998. AFC Podcast Telegraph.co.uk is the address. We'll read out the best of what you send us. Don't forget to subscribe to Audio Football Club if you haven't already. Just look for Audio Football Club on the internet. Take it from there. 100% backing you. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. 